Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben, and this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. Tonight's guest is Robert Prue from Middleborough. And Bob. Bob Bob has a story he wanted to share, and I think it's a good story. But um, So, Bob, um, whereabouts did you grow up in this area? I grew up in Bedford. Were you a street guy at the time, and when you grew up, so did you see... Like, in other words, you, you have an addiction issue that started sometime as a teenager or in their early 20s. So give us a rundown on, on what was it like? Well, the drugs wasn't really a thing back then. It was, you know, the way you're going to get drugs back then is playing in blues bands and things that I did when I was a kid because I was always hanging around with older people. And I liked music so much. So that sort of that was an introduction. Back then it was pills and it was uh, things like, you know, reds and yellows, which were barbiturates and uh, Valium uh, from the Sackler family, of course, and a few other things like that. And even pot wasn't a big thing that, you know, you couldn't really get it. And unless you came from, you know, uh, I grew up in a, not a ghetto, but, you know, back then it was pretty, pretty street, street stuff. And when you're 14 years old and you can go out until two o'clock in the morning because your parents are old mill workers and they don't even know you're gone. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was the right conditions to, to fall into that kind of stuff. But so I uh, just, for the audience to know, how old are you now? 77. Okay. So we're talking back in the late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. Early sixties. Yeah. Early sixties. And then, you know, the Beatles came out and, and, the drug culture came out and I just slid right into it. Of course, uh, my, my vehicle was, uh, wasn't, I wasn't trying to escape anything. I just always, I was, uh, uh, dummy and just like the amusement park part of it all, you know, just take myself on a mental sleigh ride, but never not realizing the dangers. Um, the, the complications came with addiction, obviously, but, Addiction didn't, addiction didn't come on until later on. Uh, what do you mean by later on? Um, later on in my life, when I started going, you know, when I started getting out into the world, I left New Bedford really early. I went to New York City and slept on rooftops and all the things that a musician trying to make it does. Uh, early Village, when Jimi Hendrix was still there, and he wasn't even Jimi Hendrix then, it was Jimi James and all the all the groups. So I was pretty much wide eyed and uh, pretty much taken back by the whole thing. I just, I just really wanted to make it in the, in the industry. And the only way I knew to do it was that. Unfortunately, with all that stuff was drugs everywhere. Every single place you looked, there was drugs. Uh, you didn't have to look for them really. <laughs> they were there. Um, what became your drug of choice? Oh, the drug of choice at first was uh, was uh, um, methadrine, believe it or not. Um, I'm a speedy character, and gives something like that to me, it just slowed me down, I think. You know? But you know, I was pretty addicted to that for a couple of years. Uh, the um, It's funny, because there's gateways in drugs that I've, I've discovered, and a lot of uh, addicts fall into this. And there's a, a lot of stories of people that we did um, drugs like methadrines, you know, speed, whatever, amphetamines. Uh, once you stop that, looking for a way to get out, heroin and all the other uh, narcotic type drugs fit right in. They just push you into a whole different place that you've been trying to get out of because, you know, speed is pretty crazy after a while. There's no really, really way out of speed except you die or you quit. Um, the heroin addiction and the, the advent of uh, legal prescription drugs uh, really did it. That was uh, 
what that meant was even heroin addicts didn't have to worry about looking for heroin anymore. They could just get pills. And uh, that was a dream come true to a lot of a lot of heroin addicts. Um, not me particularly. So I, I, I like the real stuff. It was... So you were doing heroin? Oh, yeah. Were you shooting it up or how did you do it? That's a big track right there, that railroad track. That's, that's what that's called. That's one big giant scar of needle marks. That one's so uh, Bob, Bob is um, Bob is showing me his arm. It's covered with needle marks on his lower forearm. Scars. Scars. From, so in how many years were you doing that? Oh, about oh, probably eight. Eight years. And, and how old were you then? Uh, my, 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 uh, let's see, uh, late twenties to thirties into my thirties into, uh, all the way. I got straight, um, I got straight, totally straight in 1978. Okay. But so, I quit heroin. I quit heroin before that. I was on the first methadone program in Boston, uh, Dr. Handel on Whittier street clinic and Dr. Davidson, Dr. Julian, these were all the very first methadone clinic uh, doctors at the time. Um, but it was crazy back then, too, because doctors, and a lot of doctors weren't very up on the up and up. Um, I was doing massive amounts because, well, I'm not proud of it, but you start to find out a little thing. You know, when you're a heroin addict, you pretty much can do it. You become a genius. What I mean by that is like you wake up in the morning with nothing to your name and end up buying $300 worth of heroin at the end of the day. And you don't have to steal it. You just, you just connive it somehow. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a crazy drug. But what happened was you started to find doctors that uh, liked hookers. Well, guess what? You see, you turn the hooker onto a doctor. He gives you a lot of scripts. He's happy. He's got a hooker. He gives the hooker drugs, and so on and on it went. Uh, I was doing massive amounts of, of methadone, uh, enough that if you took a, posh, a small pot of it, it would kill you instantly. I was doing up to 600 milligrams of liquid methadone a day, which is insane. Uh, basically, only Yeah, today, today you can't get methadone except for being at a clinic, and you've got to stand in line at yep. 7 o'clock in the morning, and they give you, they, they give you the quantity that you're going yep. to get. So you're saying you're saying back in the old days that you would get a prescription for liquid methadone, or how would you get it? Well, what you no, you couldn't get liquid. No, <laughs> you had to be really good at it to get liquid methadone. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about in the bile methadone. The, uh, the what when the methadone clinics first started, uh, the one on Whittier Street in Boston, Roxbury. Um, I went to the doctor and I said, doc, and I was going out with a girl. She uh, was going to uh, William Hobart University. Very nice, intelligent girl, but totally locked into heroin like I was. And um, we went to the doctor and he was, took a liking to us right from the beginning, which is never good. Uh, I told him straight out, look, I have no plans on getting rid of heroin. All I see is a gateway to get there by giving you giving me methadone. And I lied to him. I told him I was doing so much a day and so I could get a big <clears throat> grip, of course. And then I was getting extra methadone. I was selling that on the side, paying my rent that way. <laughs> it was, one, you know, one one drug con job after another. I mean, that's what it leads to. He says, well, you'll do anything to get high. And I can see why people do crimes and stuff that aren't clever enough to be able to connive and do some of the things that I did. Um, you know, it's not a thing to pat yourself on the back for, but thank God. Um, but anyway, this doctor took a liking to me and, uh, I was getting massive amounts of, of methadone and I don't know how he thought that was right, but yeah. It so when really you say sick. you were getting massive amounts, were you getting it at the drugstore? He was or giving me the getting... script. So whatever. So when you went, that... when you went to this drugstore to get a script for methadone, was it in pill form or was it in, it was in pill form? Pill form. Yeah. Yeah. Lily. Yeah. Lily, I I remember I remember quite well. Um, and so the drugs the drugstores had methadone back in the seventies. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they all had it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know, then it went to 
a lot of people like me abusing it and went to uh, clinics like the one in Boston City Hospital. Uh, that one was run by uh, Dr. Julian, uh, really nice lady. Um, but it was over, you know, it was, how do you put those clinics together? In the early days, it was like, a, it was like, a, oh God, if you wanted to find drugs, you went to the, you went to the methadone clinic because all the drug dealers were there. <laughs> they were outside. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> same place. They just got all the tent city, that part of Boston city hospital, that methadone clinic has been there forever. Um, S and Cass is what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 And those young people, young people, Boston medical used to be called city hospital. Yeah, that's right. So, so Boston city hospital. Yeah. 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 So that was the old days. That was the old days. And, you know, after that, the other natural, the other natural place for heroin addicts to go is alcohol. That was my final, that was my final drug, alcohol. You know what? It was worse than all of them. <clears throat> There's a lot of reasons why. Um, socially accepted. You're not a criminal anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. You just, but alcohol is probably kills more, hell of a lot more people than heroin ever did. Every year, every day. No one ever says anything about it. It's just because it's accepted. It's alcohol. Kind of crazy. Well, it's legal. It's legal. It's legal. And it's legal. And, and you a know, lot of judges and police officers oh yeah. drink. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. You're not going to take the alcohol away from the, from the planet. No. Uh, and it, I think I think that um, – I don't think that drugs should be legal, but I think I definitely think they should got to there's got to be a better system for controlling it. And I think that if you find people that like me that became an addict and not that you know I got into again I got into it not because I was uh, necessarily trying to hide from it. I took it as a big mental amusement park. A lot of people get into drugs that way, and whether they have problems or not, then they end up having problems because of that. Uh, Oh, they never figure out the in, in and outs of their of their own psyche, and they can't they can't grow and they can't develop from there because drugs. Desc are describe describe what you mean when you say amusement park. Well, you know, there's people that just like to take high and go. Then there's people that take drugs just to get away. They're just I can't deal with this anymore. I got I got to take drugs to do this. I never did that. I never wanted to get away from everything. I wanted to be part of everything, and drugs gave me a way to do it in a crazy way. That's all. Gave you encouragement to be more open? Yeah, in a way. And not that I ever needed it. I never realized it, but it's just, yeah, in a way. Yeah. And again, the other part of it is to be like everybody else, to be with, on the same plane as everybody else. Back then in the 60s, it was a whole different things. There was a big divide between what was before that, the Alkies of the 50s, and now you got a new drug generation. And we, we dropped a lot of acid, you know, we dropped a lot of psilocybin and mescaline all the early hippie drugs. That was, those are fun. And they weren't particularly addicting. Um, not for me anyway. Um, those were amusement drugs. Yeah. You know, all of them, you know, and then the heroin wasn't an amusement drug. Heroin came in after everything was falling apart. And then, then it just fills a, a void. So you were selling, singing in, was Bob Dylan in that group back in the '60s when you were hanging around? Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan just was just leaving the village. He just started making it big when I got to the village. The Love and Spoonful was still there. The Night Owl, Jimi Hendrix was still at the Cafe Wa under the name Jimmy James, and the Fugs and all those. Oh, uh, and actually, on over at the Bitter End was uh, Neil Diamond. He had residency there. I couldn't afford to get in though. That was on 14th Street. I used to walk by and listen to him outside. I never cared for him, to tell you the truth. I was a rocker. Well, he, made a, he made a few bucks. Um, <laughs> tell me about it. Now, now I'm singing his songs. I just got uh, nailed uh, Solitary Man. Yeah, that's a good one. The damn good song. Um, so where was your um, turning point? At what age and what happened? I think, well... I, fi I finally uh, hit bottom. I, I had my excuses were run out. My life was a mess. I was totally addicted to alcohol. I was I was dying. I was uh, and I, you know, I tried a few detoxes half heartedly. But until um, 
the third time I think I went to the it was you know and I recommend anybody that goes to detoxes stay away from those little pussy detoxes and those paid for you go to a resort you don't get you don't get you don't get reality in those places you get reality by going to a city detox and find out where your goddamn ass is going to end up I used to watch these bums hang around with their pajamas hanging off their asses they've been doing this for years in and out of detoxes so that third time, for some reason, opened my eyes. I just looked at myself in those pajamas and put myself in the place of those guys. And I said, is this where you want to end up? And I don't know, that third time I went into the, um, I went into the clinic. I mean, uh, the detox, the hospital took me there because my blood pressure was skyrocketing. Um, I walked in and the guy that saw me there, he'd seen me there three times. He answered the door and his name was George. I'll never forget it. I had my head down. He picked up my chin with his hand very gently, looked me in the eye and said, you know, I think you're ready. And I instantly knew what he meant. Uh, I went up to the third floor bathroom of this, they had, uh, the, the, de uh, the detox in this old school building. Pretty funky in Somerville, off of Somerville Avenue. And, um, I went up to the bathroom, I dropped to my knees, looked up in the sky and said, look, I know I haven't been the best person in the whole world, but I'm just asking you, can you help me? And it was the first time I sincerely asked something outside of myself for help. And yeah, uh, that was a turning point. That minute, that moment, something happened to me and I slept like a baby that night where normally you don't sleep very well when you're detoxing. Um, and I was gonna say, did you have a severe withdrawal? Nope, I had none. Zero. Zero. Amazing. Only the first time it ever happened to me. You know, other times I would withdraw like crazy. No, I didn't. Um, I mean, now, was, this, were you, was this strictly I, alcohol? Were you done with the methadone by this time? I was done with that then, yeah. I, I had, well, like I quit cigarettes years ago, I didn't quit cigarettes all at once. I detoxed myself. I didn't know anything about detoxing, but it made sense to me at that time. I went down to a lighter cigarette all the way down to Merit cigarette, which was 1.0 tar. You couldn't even taste it anymore. And then it was ridiculous. I just dropped it all. So I detoxed myself on cigarettes. And uh, you can do that with heroin. You're not going to do that with alcohol. No one detoxes off of alcohol with alcohol. That's a fact. And hmm. heroin, you can detox yourself off, but you got to get your head in the right place. That's the problem with sometimes some of the uh, you need to go. Addicts need to find another place that's higher power than them. You let drugs and alcohol into your into your into your universe uh, and it takes over. And we most of us do not have the power to be on our own to be able to defeat that. You need something out of yourself greater. If you can look at the thing that it's an intangible thing, alcohol, drugs is a power of yourself. Well, it's just as easy to believe in something else that's higher than that. And that's what I did. I put my belief in God, the way I choose to see God. What I'm trying to say is it, modern addiction has sometimes uh, become uh, uh, a big place for lots of people to make lots of money. I see so many, so many bad, whether they mean right or not, just the wrong approach to addiction on people and how they deal with people with addictions. I've never been one for soft love necessarily, but I don't believe in hammering somebody when in addiction. I, I don't think that people, I don't think that uh, because you buy, buy yourself into Betty Ford Clinic is going to be any better than going to a place like some detox. So you get a good dose of reality. You don't see a bunch of rich people paying for their sobriety. That's why it don't work, because you try to pay for sobriety. You don't pay for sobriety. So you have to earn it. You have to earn it. And you have yeah, to want it. You have to want it. You have to really want it, you know, and not keep blaming other things and other places for it. When you uh, stopped taking methadone, did you did, were you did you have a period of time where you were dope sick? No, none at all. Zero. Zero. Because the power of wanting to quit, once you really want to quit, once you want to do something, just like anything else, just like if you want to hit a curveball, well, you know, you what? You can go at it long enough, you're going to hit the curveball. I and, mean, you know, you're going to the same thing, really. You're just gonna find that right place to, to put yourself to do it. That's all. It's just a it's a, it's, a, it's a mental approach to it. And well, today, um, how long you've been sober? 
1978. Have you figured out how many years that is? No. Okay. <laughs> so do you go to AA meetings? Sometimes. I, I don't go as much as I should, I think. Uh, I think, uh, and not only for my own sobriety, but for to help other people's sobriety. Because when you have long-term sobriety, you become a um, uh, a figure for people, for hope. Because they go, if that jackass can do it, I certainly can do it. And, you know, that's the, that's the things that I, why I, I I built myself up a um I I used to I, uh, I used to call it the uh, letting the tiger out of the uh, cage, where the addiction being the tiger, and you can't ever get you can't kill the tiger you can never ever f fully get rid of the tiger once you've got it you, but you can keep it in the cage, but if you allow yourself fantasies like walking by a liquor store and seeing bottles and say gee I remember when I used to drink and all the fun I used to have you have to limit all those thoughts. You have to uh, uh, at least understand what they are and don't dwell on them because all of those things start to open the key to that gate of that tiger to come out again and take over. And that's what addiction is all about, really. It really is. It's, it's, it's uh, the ability to eliminate excuses, the ability to face yourself on a daily basis and, and share it. There's not much, there's not much more involved. Well, you were, you're a musician and you're at clubs, you're at weddings, you're at all kinds of Christmas parties and functions mm -hmm. and everybody there is drinking. I know it. And, and, and you're in the middle of it all. And I, <laughs> I, I was going to say my, my drug of choice was gambling. Uh -huh. And I'm, and I find I, if I walk through a casino in Las Vegas, it's, um, it's, it's, Unbelievably tempting, but now I watch uh, the the Celtics games, and they're given they're given the line at halftime, and the over and under at halftime. They're changing the lines as the game's going along. I know. And they're, they're they're giving you call FanDuel and Fanatics and and um, one thing after the other. You know, it's like nonstop. Uh, how do you? How do you control yourself when you're seeing all these people? They look like they're having a good time, but they won't tomorrow morning. But, you know, because huh? I know the truth. Right. <laughs> as simple as that. And I'm in full control of my faculties. They're not. I can play with them. I can. Good for them. And, you know, I I, I don't admire somebody who can handle alcohol and not pick it up the next day and maybe the next even year. However, I don't. I don't think it's, uh, I just think it's a bunch of people acting stupid. It, it, it becomes like, I, I mean, I don't dwell on that. I just know that people are drunk and they're not, a, and you're not going to have a great conversation with drunk people. You're going to have foolish conversation, talk about sports, you talk about, yeah, you know, but what do you, what do you talk seriously to somebody who's drunk? You can't. You can't. They're, they, all they're going to do is argue with you anyway. That's right. They're on a different plane. You, they just left that the the plane of reality that you're not on anymore. And so I just take it, ah, you know. And you know, every once in a while, I'll see some guy being really stupid. I go, yeah, that used to be me. <laughs> Boy, was I stupid. That's all. Again, it's just a matter of just turning that brain uh, 180 degrees. Just look at it a different way, and and you know that that's and I'm not tempted at all because. A, if I do have any slight sneaky little temptation, because it reminds a funny thing, it'll sneak little things in on you every once in a while. And, you know, you have this like uh, sort of like the Israeli uh, umbrella shooting those goddamn missiles out of the sky. The same thing. Boom. As soon as that thought comes up, that's going to get me in trouble. Boom. It's gone. Takes a while. Well, you can, to get you have, takes a lot of self-discipline. Oh, well, but, it takes, um... uh, well uh, stick-to-itiveness, you know. Um, being so obnoxiously stubborn that <laughs> uh, for once it served me in a good way. <laughs> but other than yeah. that, um, I've helped a lot of people. Um, I was just doing, I do an open mic on Thursday nights over at the Brewster Bar in Plymouth. And this girl showed up <clears throat> with her two uh, new singers with her musicians and her, some of her friends. 
And this girl a couple of years ago was going to take my singer's place, Ann's place, because Ann was thinking of quitting. And this girl, right away, I noticed a nice, nice girl. I noticed that she might have a drinking problem because where it's not obvious to somebody like once you're in the place that I was, you can see two people drunk and you can tell which one's got the problem and who's not, even though they're both acting the same. So I sensed that she might have a problem. So I used to throw these. I, I never confront people unless they, you know, really drastic or uh, they confront me. And I mentioned a couple of things to her, not thinking anything of it. Well, it turned out that Anne never left and she never ended up playing with me. But so over a year and a half has gone by and I see her there and, and her friend pulls me aside and says to me, I want to tell you something. <clears throat> um, you mean a lot to Jamie, blah, blah, blah. And I, what? She says, yeah, she said, you helped her a lot. I'm like, I, I had no really no clue what she meant. And it was, the, I thought she was talking about music and it wasn't, it was about her addiction to alcohol. And she's straight now. And from what I mentioned to her and those little things that, so I was like, cause you know how to put bullets in things, you know, it's like where yeah. you say something, leave it alone. If they're ready to accept it, they'll accept it. And she did. And I never knew it cause I never talked to her much anymore. And now she's totally straight. And she's happy. She she looks at her whole persona has changed. It's amazing. So to me, the being rewarded, I mean, the, the some of the good fortune I've had being sober, I think uh, that's like payback. There's a continuous thing that addicts help addicts. Yeah. Oh, I want to. I want to be. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you this. know, it's like the same thing with, uh, I met uh, Scotty, Jerry's kid. And I was bringing him to detox. I was bringing him to meetings every day. I was picking him up at the anchor house. I got him to say his first talk at, at the meeting after about seven tries. And out from him came stuff that I really didn't want to hear. Because <laughs> I obviously know his family. It was pretty Yes, sad. I know. It was pretty sad. I, I really, I was like, oh my God. He, he he had the whole place like just sitting. There was a sound to be made. He let he poured his heart out. And the individual uh, he you're talking about, he, huh? he, he he overdosed twice and they, he had to come, come back with Narcan, you know? Yeah. So that's, um, that was a big turning point in his life. Yeah. And because he was virtually dead. Yeah. And they brought him back, you know, so. And he's now actually a, he went for training to be a rehab therapist. So he's, I don't know he, if you realize that. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, he went back to college and he's got his certificate to be a therapist at a rehab facility. Awesome. So he's he, definitely turned the corner a big time. Um, so. There you go. Reward. That's yes. a reward. That's a reward to me. Yeah. So when, when you were younger, did you find when you were singing that you needed to have the alcohol to sing or did you just. No, 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 no. It was just it was just part of the amusement park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living I never, through. I never I never was shy to get up in front of people. I was playing when I was and I was playing. the, I was playing in the um, bars on the uh, when I was 16 years old. Uh, on the waterfront in New Bedford, you used to have all these little dive bars, fishermen dive bars that you, you could see a lot of life there. I'll tell you, uh, I see the uh, Norwegian fishing fleet come in with all the big muscular women back then when it wasn't really fashionable. Uh, yeah. Bar fights uh, in Newport. I played in Newport for years. Uh, Newport in the Navy was there for years. I played in the combat zone in Boston for years. I used to play at the Intermission Lounge and Jerome's and the Two O'Clock Lounge. Played for all the gangsters. Frankie Bolero. Remember Rocky Bolero, the murderer? Yeah, that was his brother. No. That was a big Boston thing. That was Rocky Bolero. You know. No, I was not involved in that, so I, I didn't follow us. I, I know the names only from the news, and that's about it. That's how, yeah. Well, that's 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 all the people that owned those places in those days. And it yeah, was there wasn't a hell of a lot of drugs in those days, though. A lot of pills, but there wasn't. Uh, 
you know, the blue laws, there wasn't even go-go dances in those days. There wasn't strippers then. There was just music. That was a good time. So today, today heroin is a lot cheaper than it used to be. Of apparently. course. Of course. Uh, says, is there a, do you think there's a bigger supply? Is there more people using when you're in these nightclubs? Can you tell? No, no, no. It's back then maybe now now it's it's now I don't know I don't even know how you would uh, quantify it by saying I think it's just so much everywhere. Uh, heroin is so damn cheap now because you still can make a giant profit selling it for cheap prices because <laughs> supply and demand. You're not going to make the same amount of money selling heroin. When I used to get China White. I mean, I used to, you know, there was a time I dealt it, of course, to keep my own habit alive. I used to get Mexican mud. Uh, so China White, China White, is it from China and it's white? Is that why China, they China that? White is, a, is one, was one of the purest at the time, it was one of the purest farms you're going to get. It was, it was, it was just the way it was manufactured. It was superior. Um, so what, what would a bag of heroin cost you back in the 70s? 10 bucks. 10 bucks. That's it. Mm hmm. And, uh, bag of pot was 15 caught a lid it wasn't somewhere near an ounce or maybe over some <laughs> grab it put it in the bag uh, mm -hmm. the heroin uh heroin was cheaper than pot back then uh no pot was cheaper in a way it depended on the quantity you can't, it's really hard to quantize those the um the heroin uh the most of it that was coming in, well, you know, the lot, yeah, it was a lot of crap. A lot of that brown was called Mexican mud and stuff that's come came in from Mexico. It wasn't synthesized as well as the as the uh, China white <clears throat> and cocaine was right behind that too. It was all in the same. The same distributors were doing the same same things. But the yeah. thing that the thing that made it worse. By far, I mean, I, I mean, if you want to say how, how, what exploded the real uh, narcotic uh, habit revolution is um, legal drugs. Yeah. I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe somebody gave me an oxycontin. I had a, I had a shoulder operation uh, a few years ago. And a buddy of mine, I rented one of my houses too, at the time when I still had the house in Manomet. Um He um, had some oxycontin. He says, "I, I was really hurting because the." Uh, I say, "Yeah, I, I, I was stupid." And I said, "Well, but I was taking I was taking some other pain, uh, some other oxys from my shoulder." Um, so I took it. And I couldn't believe how powerful it was. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, if this was out when I was a heroin addict, I would be dead now. I couldn't believe how much more powerful OxyContin was to heroin. Well, it depends if you're in a, you know, there's 40 milligrams, there's 80 milligrams. You I know. know and you, I had an 80 milligram. Into them, I took get into those. Yeah. Yeah. And if somebody isn't used to it, you could die oh. from that. Oh, yeah. Easy. I, I can't believe, I can't believe the Federal Drug Administration allows those drugs to even be legal, mm -hmm. able to take over the counter. And the hospital different story, over the counter, that's that's insane. That's, it really is. It really is. Well, you need a prescription, but still. Um, and, yeah. you know, Ill. you're right. Back in the, back in the, your early part of 20, like, 2010, 20, 2000 to 2010, and and then around that time, prescriptions were the biggest reason why people got addicted. Yep, because uh, Purdue Pharma was pushing it heavy. They had the sales reps out on the street saying it was the oh, cure-all yeah. drug. Oh yeah, yeah. No matter whether you got back pain, you stub your toe, you've got um, an earache, you yep. know. Um, you got anxiety. I mean, I know somebody who got started got a prescription because their their sister died and she was, you know, hysterical as she could would be, you know, it was her twin sister. And yep. it was a sudden thing. She got hit by a train. Yep. And and right away they 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 prescribed her with 
um, 30 milligrams of oxycodone. And, but they said, take three or four a day as needed. Yep. You know, that's a lot. Yep. And she was addicted until she died, you know, and yep. that just, she was, you know, one, one thing went, led to another, you know, and, and, um, and as time went on, she kept getting a higher dose because the low what? dose wasn't working. And that, that's the thing that people don't understand, those low doses. And that's why now so many people are looking for fentanyl. Yep. You would think with all the fentanyl deaths we have that people would be not looking for fentanyl. <laughs> but um, the gentleman we had on two weeks ago who is living on the streets voluntarily and meeting all these homeless people, um, he's finding that most of them are on, they, they were all seeking fentanyl. and because they say it's it's the highest thing and of course somebody somebody dies of it they right away they think well he was weak you of know course. i want to know who the supplier was because that's the kind of fentanyl i want i want the high i want the potent stuff he's right you know and so um it's like um it's it's kind of crazy you know if everybody says to me why is uh people who don't know much about it they say why is the dealer killing his clients well, he's not because he doesn't consider he's killing his clients. The ones who are dying of fentanyl are usually the ones who haven't taken fentanyl. Like I just know there's a college in the area that had 14 overdoses in the past three months. And these guys are buying, they're buying marijuana legally and they're lacing it with fentanyl to get super high. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're doing it. The drug dealers not doing it. They bought the marijuana, you know, at a at a at a at a place where you can buy it legally in Massachusetts. But then they bought fentanyl to sprinkle on it to make it super duper, and then they all ended up overdosing. That's um, insane. That those those are just idiots. That, you know, uh, <laughs> a real drug addict would never do that. <laughs> but to give you an idea how naive some of the parents are. Oh, yeah. I, I talked to one of the parents and he said, he said, he said, I couldn't. I don't understand. They said they brought my son back to life with Narcan. What's Narcan? And the guy did not know what Narcan was because he's never experienced this. And people who are very naive because their child or their, you know, is, has never been involved and they've never had any uh, any reason to learn. But in my belief, everybody should learn about it. Because, yeah. because it's just to be safe. It's like you know, you should learn how to swim, even if you don't plan on going swimming. That's just, right. just in case your car goes off a bridge, it would be helpful. You know, I was like, I agree, it, I agree, but it, it ain't gonna happen. It ain't gonna happen. Ain't it doesn't happen. seem people people don't get involved until it's oh. it happens to them. Yep. You know, their their son or their daughter gets hooked, and they um. And he, he's he's at a loss because as he said he saw his son. He hadn't seen his son for four months. He couldn't believe it was the same kid. He looked disheveled and he looked terrible. And and his he he's got six months to go to graduate, and and now he's super hooked, and he's not sure what to do with him. You know, so uh, old him, old the kid, twenty one. He's young. Well, he's a well, senior in college. He's 21 or 22. And, and, and he, about it until the kid wants to do something about it. And this kid happened to be an athlete. He's on, he's um, at school on a tennis scholarship. Mm. He's highly ranked for a young guy. He's highly ranked in college as a tennis. He could be turn. he could turn pro, you know, he's that a bad good. life. Throw that away. Jeez. Yeah. But of course, if he can't, if he's, Getting high in college, going on the road would be worse. Yeah. 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 So, um, so what would what would you um, recommend to parents out there that have kids in high school? Um, you know, how how do you keep them from experimenting? How do we do can't. that? Can't. We can't. How do you? I don't know. I don't know any way to do it. And, but should they be constantly, even though they don't see any signs, should they I, be I, looking I, for signs? Well, <clears throat> you, you, 
you can't look for something you don't know what is. If you don't know what the yeah. signs are, what do you I mean? A drug addict can spot a drug addict in a crowd. A non-drug right. addict is not going to spot that unless he's like falling down, whatever. But if he's just acting like a human being, how do you tell he's a... It's really tough. The, the only thing that communication has to start at a very early, you can't just uh, interject at like the age of 18. Where were you from 12? Putting your head under a cover somewhere. Parents have to get involved early, early, early intervention yeah. before they become an addict. And not with just shit they read. They have to understand what they're reading and understand the, the complications and the implications of addiction and that it can happen to everyone everywhere. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit of work. But Frank Zappa said a long time ago at the Mother's Inventions, he had a line in one of his songs, says, America drinks and goes home. You know what that means? It means we want to go home. We work our asses off. We want to go home. The last thing we want to talk about is reality. We want to get away from reality. We want to, and so we watch TV, we watch soap opera, we do whatever we do. We go go to a, play golf, right? What we yeah. don't do with some of the things that are most important, like communicate with our children. Now, if my parents, and God bless them, they were just hard blue collar workers. Uh, my mother went to the sixth grade. My father went to the fourth grade. Uh, they didn't know much about anything. They were just good, honest, hardworking people, sweetest people in the whole world. And uh, they, you know, those people weren't, weren't going to help me with addiction. They weren't going to, they didn't know anything about stuff like that. Today's world is different, though. We have the communication. There's no excuses for people to put their heads under the sand. How many deaths are they going to see on TV? How many, I mean, they all have children. Yeah. That's it. They have to. But they, that's the only way to establish a line of communication from an early age. Like I have going with Victor. I made sure of that right from the very start. Maybe his father isn't got that much to do about anything, but I could do. And so you, know, you, you are, just so people should know, Victor is your grandson. Yes. And you're raising your grandson. Yes. Yes. And you're, you're raising your grandson because you're, son is not capable of doing it or his wife or the mother or father are both out of the picture. Yep. Yeah. And this, this is another big thing that we have happening in, the, in America is we have lots of grandparents raising their grandchildren and because yep. their son or daughter has either died of an overdose or they're in detox and they're just not capable or if they're on the street yep. using, they're not capable of taking care of kids. And so a lot of blessings a there. A lot of what? There's a lot of blessings there. For those people, I say, maybe if you would have taken care of your own kids, you wouldn't have to be dealing this with your grandchildren. Yeah. Maybe. And but God but, bless but, you. You're doing it with your grandchildren better than but it's easier you know. to raise it. Well, in a sense, it's easier to raise grandchildren because you're much easier. You you're you're older, but it's exhausting. That's right. That's that's a big thing. When you're you know seventy eight and you know when you're seventy seven years old, you're not supposed to be going to teacher conferences, you know, at the we school. Do. We do. You do you, you do. I know you do. That's right. You know, <laughs> I, I I understand entirely. I mean I, that's what I my wife went, was a little while. That's what she was calling me from. <laughs> I just went to a head start graduation. So I know I know what it's like, you know, because I'm I'm doing it too. You know, I got great grandchildren that I'm helping out with. And so it's a, it's an issue. The oldest one is only six and I got three of them. So it's, um, they're, they're, Believe that. they're exhausting. And I took them to Eaterville railroad and, oh, and yeah. I, I was the one that needed to nap on the train, you know, <laughs> the, <coughs> you know, like, can we, can we, can we go to bed now? Is it time yet? Oh, you look know? at you. You're the guy that runs out to Arizona to play baseball. I don't want to hear that. Uh, you got no, more, I know. You got more energy than most old guys I know. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, we a, both know. that's, that's my demand thing. So, um, so, um, 
So um, you just do you have to think about it every day to stay no. sober or huh? No, it doesn't even get into your mind anymore, right? No, no. There's sometimes it'll be weeks that'll go by before anything enters my mind like that. Even you though know, you're in nightclubs constantly playing music. Uh, temptation, uh, yeah, temptation. Uh, um, I've got temptation down to a, uh, I don't even realize it when it hits. I've got such a missile defense system that if I, I, I don't remember the last thought I had saying, gee, I, I wonder what it would be taking like a drink or I wonder what it would be like to take that drug. I, I doesn't even into my mind anymore. I, because again, I've got tons of layers of, of defense system built up against that early warning systems. You know, I know in my mind, because I've heard enough stuff in AA and I've heard enough stuff of testimonies from other people to store that good information. You know, you'll, it's like uh, baseball instruction. You'll hear the stuff that applies to what you, how you play and what you play and style you play. And yeah. the, same, the same thing, uh, same thing with music. Uh, so yeah, you know, um, no, I don't. I don't remember any. I can't even remember the last time I was tempted. No, but that's very good. It's something I do every day, though, to maintain that. Is there's not a morning that I wake up that I don't drop to my knees and say thank you, and there's not a night that I go to sleep that I don't drop to my knees and say thank you. That's very more than that. No, that's but, the secret. That's the secret for you. I mean, and you must be thinking how thankful you are that you survived. Yeah. with yeah. your history with your history that you know for every for every five that are like you four of them have died yeah. you know and the other the other one that made it through i've had guns and, uh, pointed in my face i've had shotgun in my face i've had more things situations <laughs> but well that's what they're saying and when you say that it's not because you're in a nightclub it's because you're out on the street trying to score some heroin or something and all the life and, uh, involved with it. Yeah. 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 I know. It's like, you know, gamblers end up dealing with loan sharks. Exactly. You, know, you didn't pay your bookie on time and you got to deal with that. 5% exactly. interest a week. And there's a lot of things that happen, you know, that See, you know, to me, you that's know. even scarier. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know from, those guys. You're hiding from to, the bad guys, you know. When I was 12 years old, I used to run numbers from Charlie the Midget for down in New Bedford, from Charlie the Midget's variety store to George Carafa's Greek restaurant, and he's in a little brown bag with little slips in it. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah, now. Now you just call your eight one eight hundred FanDuel, and you're all set. You, can you know, what I you like want. on those ads. There's a little disclaimer that the, the government makes them put down about drug addiction, about the gambling addiction. You see that? Disclaimer? Oh yeah. If you, if you think you have a problem, call this eight hundred number. Yeah. You know. The, yeah. After we just hyped you with all this, you can put this little disclaimer on. <laughs> yeah. So where we live in. Uh, that's right. So um, Bob, I want to thank you for taking the time out today to kind of give us an enlightening history of your. You know, your life to where you are today and how you made it, you know. And, but most um, important, how you get there and how you maintain it. And that's the most important thing. I don't know any other way. Uh, and I've known a lot of successes in, in, in sobriety. And they all pretty much have the same basis. Yeah, you got to, you got to, you know, my feeling is you, you've got to put yourself into something else. Like you put it into God. Um Put it into working out at the gym, put it into music, yep. putting into selling vacuum cleaners, whatever it is. You gotta <laughs> you gotta go out and do something where you gotta do what you, you're good at. <laughs> yeah, and take your energy and put it into good good energy instead of bad energy, you know. And, sure. and that's um, that's that's really what's important. And and as you said, you know, if you um if a lot of AA pe people they um they have a sponsor and if, when you become a sponsor and you take care of people and I became a bereavement facilitator and that was the best thing to help me keep going, you know? And um, so when, when you're a sponsor at AA, I, I think you're, you're, um, you're, you're, you're telling this other person how to stay sober, but you're telling yourself at the same time, you, you, know, you, you, you just keep, 
repeating it over and over again. And that's what's happening, you know, and that's, that's good. You know, so. There's also another thing that I have that's been a useful tool. There's a little book called the 24 hour day book. I would highly recommend this to everyone. Um, you got a second? I'll go, go run and get it and show you. No, you can tell tell us about it because we're just about out of time. It's a, it's a, it's a little book, and it has a, a saying. For, it's uh, it's it's translated from Sanskrit. Um, it's a little book of sayings for every day of the year. Okay, when you say Sanskrit from Buddhism, Sanskrit, the, the language, and it was yeah. it was it was translated from, but every day has some kind of a psalm about of, of working in in the first part is about is for alcoholics. The second part of it is anyone can read because it applies to just human beings. And that is called the 24 hour day book by Hazelden. Every person I've ever turned, every addict I've ever turned on to this book that sincerely wants to get their act together has used this book success successfully. It's amazing. I've had it since 1978. It's tattered. I've taken it on the road with me. It never leaves my, never leaves me. It's always, when I go do shows, it's always in my briefcase, always. It's the first thing I look for. It's the first thing I pack when I leave. And I actually got a replacement because some of the pages are so tattered that I have to look in the other book for it. But I read it every single day. And I put little... And what's, what's the name of the book now again? The 24-Hour Day Book by Hazelden, Hazelden Publishing. I'll send, okay. you the, I'll send you the info. This little book is so good. And it was given to me way back in 1978. And the same person with the same kind of uh, uh, the guy that got me uh, realized that I was was my time to get sober to got George. He gave he gave me the book to begin with. And it's amazing. And I've given this book to many, many people and they've all thanked me for it. That's very good. The, the book that I've given away a lot is is called Peace in Every Step. Oh, I know that and book. I know that book is. It's by Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Buddhist. I've seen um, that book. Yes. And uh, that's same similar because if you read a, one chapter every day, with chapters only one page, and it's mm. so you can have peace for the day, you know, and peace yeah. going forward. Pretty much the same thing like that. Same same concept, you know. And yeah. It's a little little thin book, but it's good. Yeah, you know, it's, it's only good. like this big. Big. Yeah, it's like a little pamphlet you can take with you everywhere, as you said. So, those things are important. I mean, you have to do the steps of sobriety, just like all the steps you took to get addicted. You have to do the same, same reverse steps to get out of it. Yeah, and you, no and more, you have no to less. delete. You have to delete all the phone numbers for all your suppliers. <laughs> I think that would be the first thing you do. <laughs> if you, yeah. you leave them. If you leave their phone numbers in your phone, that would be one of the ways. To... I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a, well, another thing, too, is like a lot of people have a hard time with. Sometimes you just have to leave. When I came to Plymouth in 1970, I, I, I would have never worked for Electrolux. I would have never worked for anything if I didn't come here in 1978 and went to the Anchor House on, on Cherry Street in Plymouth. After the detox, I went and stayed at the Anchor House for three months, uh, three months. And I got myself a job in the forest, got myself in the tremendous shape. And, you know, went to, then went to a sober house on Main Street, Mrs. Kendricks, this old piano teacher who took a liking to me. And I lived at the sober house for a few months until I was felt strong enough and had enough faith in my staying sober to go out on my own. But, you know, I did all the things to try and keep myself safe which made sense. Well, that's good because you, you, you had the motivation. You, you were ready. You were ready. That's the big thing. And a lot of parents try to make their per their kids ready, but they're not ready. Well, and it, you have to, they have to keep trying until something clicks. Well, here's the problem. Sometimes you're not ready till you hit bottom. Right. And that's scary. There's some people with an asshole like me. I had to hit bottom because I'm too stubborn and too, honorary to say I'm wrong. It, it seems like a lot of people that are, were in your boat were too stubborn. They thought they were all know-it-alls kind of thing. Yeah. And they they knew they knew better and they knew they could handle it and all that. The one problem though is today with fentanyl, when you hit bottom, you're dead. You can't unintelligent drugs. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> That's right. No, it, no, it's it's uh, but you know the, the point is parents <clears throat> talk to your children from the beginning. Don't don't wait until it becomes a problem. Don't wait till they feel they can't talk to you. Talk to them first. You got to have a relationship with your kids so that you, relationship. you can yep. you can talk to them and they can talk to you. So this so if they you have bet. a question, they'll come to you and ask. You know that's you know sometimes kids are intimidated by their parents. You know. Especially, you know, I've had kids so, come to me and say, I wish I could talk to you. Like, I wish I could talk to my parents. Like I talked to you. Yes. I, I, and, I tell, and I tell the kids you can, but you know, and then I try to explain to some kids, sometimes a child is parent to the man and they don't understand yeah. it. Right. They don't understand that right away. And then I'll explain it to them a little bit. And sometimes they get it. Sometimes they, it all depends on where they're at in their own head, but that's right. Know, you don't tell them and they'll never learn but hopefully when you say stuff like that they pick up on it but okay. i'll help anybody if they're addicted even if i don't like them that's how much i don't like addiction <laughs> well that's good yeah that's that's really good so um bob i want to uh, thank you for taking the time out today yeah and no, thanks, this for, is the uh, thanks for doing what you do i mean the only way people are going to start to understand is people like you and I talking about it and getting it out to people. No. That's right. It's called it's ed awareness and education about the problem and the issues. I'd rather again, talk on this, I'd rather talk on this level than when I used to go to Bridgewater State Hospital and talk to the addicts and I used to do go there with AA and they used to make fun of most of the speakers because they all most of most of the guys came from the suburbs. But when I got up, nobody made fun of me. Yeah. Yeah, I did that for a few years. I was able to speak so I know exactly life. what you're talking about, you know. Yeah. So those people are sad. And when they started some to made it, around, some some will make it and some will not, you know. And I I always used to say to them that, you know, twenty five percent of you once you leave this place will be in an urn somewhere on your mother's mantle. And the rest of you might make it, and 25% of you will be smart enough to know, and you'll be at Fenway Park eating a hot dog and having a Coke. So you can decide which direction you want to yeah. go. Yeah. Do you want to be in the urn, or do you want to be in the seat at Fenway? You know, That's you what they understand. That's what they understand. Yeah. I used to say, they used to make fun of the other guys. I used to say, no, I've been up here listening to you make fun of all these nice speakers that came here, took their time to come in here to help you guys. And you're making fun of them. Right. But you know what, dudes? When this meeting is over, they're getting to that door and they're, they're going home. And you all are going to still sit and be chuckling over yourselves. I want to thank you again for your time. This is uh, Tony LaGreca. This is The Courage to Hope. And we want to thank everybody for listening today. Vacuum City in Plymouth is your full-service sales and repair station, as well as the top local distributor of Melee and Bissell commercial and home cleaning products. Don't miss out on the Uncle Tony special exclusively for WMEX listeners. Get the Little Hercules vacuum for free when you purchase the 8-pound upright. Go to vacuum-city.com or call 508-746-0721 Monday through Friday between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Make sure you tell them Uncle Tony sent you. Call Vacuum City at 508-746-0721. Attention, businessmen and women. Do you sell a product or offer a service? Would you like to increase your sales and client base? Would you like to capture the over 50 baby boomer population? Baby boomers control 70% of the wealth and spendable income. And the most cost-efficient way to reach these boomers is with WMEX Radio Sales. Partner with us because we are the only radio station in Boston catering to the baby boomers. The 50-plus market is too important to overlook. Increase your sales and bottom line. Go to WMEXSales at gmail.com or call 774 487 85 one six for a consultation go to wmexsales at gmail.com or call 774-487-8516 
1510 WMEX Quincy Boston and 101.1 FM W266DQ Quincy, 